Honestly, I've genuinely considered starting a cinema or having some sort of say. If I ever had a cinema, I would outlaw popcorn. I'm really sorry for all the popcorn lovers out there, but it just makes no sense to me. Hello and welcome to This Is My Cinema, the podcast from the British Independent Film Awards that explores the lives of filmmaking talent through the cinema experiences that shaped them. I'm Rihanna Dillon. And I'm Michael Leader, and together we like to take our guests through the sticky carpets, the red curtains, the folding chairs and the popcorn buckets that made them who they are today. And along the way, we're curating the perfect cinema trip with them as well, from Harris Dickinson's local favourite, the close-up centre on Brick Lane, to Adil Akhtar's magical dream palace on the shores of a lake in New Zealand. We're travelling to a lot of cinemas on this show. And today we've got another trip and another great guest, James Norton. I have been obsessed with James Norton, I didn't tell him this, for uh, about 10 years. I loved him so much in Happy Valley as Tommy Lee Royce, where, you know how with like Jamie Dornan and with James Norton, Mm -hmm. with The Fall and with Happy Valley, there was like a sort of a period where people really fell in love with murderers. It was a very dark time for British TV, but it was they were very beautiful. He's also recently been in The Nevers as Hugo Swan, who is this very louche owner of a brothel. So I really loved his performance in that. You might also have seen him in Lady Chatterley's Lover, McMafia, The Trial of Christine Keeler, which was excellent. And on the big screen, he has great little supporting roles in films like Little Women, Mike Lee's Mr. Turner, Belle. He's also got a brand new release that's in cinemas right now called Nowhere Special, which we'd recommend you check out. Absolutely. I loved Belle. I think there was so much in that film. So yes, I am very excited to talk to the lovely James Norton. James Norton, thank you so much for joining us on the Biffa podcast. So what we do with every episode is we give our guests the free reign of the cinema for an evening to show us whatever they want. And if a certain cinema comes to mind, it can be any cinema that they want as well. So what's coming to mind for you? What film would you like us to watch? Are we starting with film? Um, okay. Well, <laughs> so, so I was thinking I should probably say something really sophisticated um, <laughs> but i'm sure everyone does don't they before you you, uh, you immediately get a little bit intimidated so i was thinking you know like space odyssey or something i was thinking about the more erudite answer and going through all the kind of versions and possible options and do you know what? i ended up thinking the film i want to watch in the cinema is hook <laughs> yeah that is brilliant yeah. choice why hook I, well, has it been? I don't know when it was last in a cinema. I watched it a couple of years ago and it was so good. It's such a good movie. It chimes with the time in my life when I think I was just recognising cinema, storytelling and all the value that it has. And it's an amazing movie. And the performances, Dustin Hoffman's performance is unbelievable. It's a, it's a brilliant movie. And one of the best things about being a kid, it's got, you know, beautiful, happy, heady moments of kids flying through the air. But then it's, painfully heartbreaking and i mean seeing those massive scenes you know when um wh- wh- who, who's the cameo glenn close, glenn close gets the put in the, pirate, yeah yeah like those huge festival scenes when you've got that glorious color and sound and young boys and adult men and women swinging in the air i just think to see that on the big screen once more return to my childhood and all its glory so yeah i went for the the less erudite answer. So I know you said you watched this a couple of years ago, but I presume this is a, f- a big film for you as a kid then. 
And you were just reaffirming your love of it when you watched it as an adult. I think it was a massive film as a kid, wasn't it all? I mean, I don't know how you how old you guys are. I'm 35. When did Hook come out? 91, I think. 1990. So yeah, it was one of the first films I saw at the cinema, I think. 1991. Well done. Wow. That's, so I was, yeah, I was six. And I think I would have seen it in the cinema. But yes, definitely one of those early memories of watching a movie and being so taken by it. I remember seeing the scene when um, Robin Williams' son is banging the baseball against the plane window. And he's like, what's wrong, Dad? And I remember feeling this terror Mm. being on that plane with them. And even though I probably didn't understand the science of getting whipped out, the pressure in a cabin suddenly decreasing. But I definitely remember feeling that particular scene for some reason, feeling it very viscerally. And I guess, yeah, it must have been those early days when films and storytelling started to have the the kind of impact which it's continued to have and Scott Robin Williams and you know (laughs) what a cast so Hook Hook you're all watching Hook the trailers will be all my friends and family's home videos because also I've always thought that would be quite fun to show all your crappy iPhone videos on the cinema screen Mm -hmm. and maybe have like a hit and miss you know everyone can throw in a video that's my trailers I love oh, that. I love that you've given us the whole experience. It's not I, just the film. You've thought about this. And, you know, like the atmospheric <clears throat> music that they play just before when you're just waiting. Have you thought yes. about that? Well, we're going into detail here. Um, <laughs> would I have any atmospheric music? Uh, mate, I mean, what's, what's the music and hook? Uh, I, I need to go away and, um, <laughs> and, and feel the whole, the whole holistic experience. <laughs> You're going to ask me about food. I know that, I think. Yeah, we leave that to the end because that's, that's, oh. that's the big one. Okay, that's good. the big controversial question. But I suppose, do you have a cinema in mind? Clearly you went for a film that was close to your youth, perhaps. But what about the cinema? Well, this is why the food thing is interesting because I'm going to contradict myself. But I'm going to say, well, both my cinemas are food orientated. <laughs> well, okay. Obviously the priority is the movie. But I have enjoyed... Particularly on like a Tuesday afternoon, I used to live up in the Harringay and one of my favourite things to do when I was out of work, which is a lot as an actor, particularly at the beginning of your career, was go to watch afternoon showings at the Screen on the Green, the mm. Everyman in, in Islington. Because you could take one of those double sofas and there would be no one else there and you could order a glass of wine. <laughs> so I'm a stickler for quiet cinemas. So I love an atmosphere. I would love to watch Hook with everyone because we'd all be shouting Rufio to the rooftops, which would be glorious. But when it comes to watching a movie and the kind of movies I like to watch, I like an, <laughs> I'm so antisocial, I like an empty cinema. And the, and the only person who's allowed to eat is me. <laughs> <laughs> That's why the food thing is relevant because I'm choosing a cinema which has food. The other cinema I love, having spent more time in New York, is the Alamo Theatres. Also, mm-hmm. you can order your food. You have people running up and down taking orders. So... I'm kind of mixing the cinema experience with food and wine, but as long as no one else is eating or drinking, because I can't stand (laughs) the sound, but we'll get to that at the end. Wait, so something must have triggered that particular hatred of hearing other people snacking in the cinema. Can you remember one time when that really ruined a film experience for you? Well, we're jumping here, aren't we? Because we are going into the snack thing, but I hate popcorn. I hate anyone eating popcorn. Why would you have the noisiest snack in the world (laughs) in every cinema in the world? I remember sitting with a friend and he has this weird habit where he would not just place the popcorn in his mouth, but he'd do like three bites with his front teeth. 
and then throw it in. And I'm sitting next to him and I've, I've probably damaged friendships by asking people to eat quietly. I've, I've taken friends' packets of Skittles and taken it out of the plastic wrapper and placed it in a box because the plastic, you know what I mean? I definitely have an issue when it comes to like <laughs> noise, mastication, crinkling packets, heavy breathing. I'm just not very tolerant. And popcorn is the top of my list of intolerance because it's so noisy. So yeah, sorry, I sound like a real cantankerous Grinch. But that's where I stand with snacks. <laughs> no, so this is your cinema. That's the title of the podcast. If you want to lay those ground rules, you can. And uh, everyone has to enjoy it. Honestly, I've genuinely considered starting a cinema or having some sort of say. Or if I ever had a cinema, I would outlaw popcorn. I'm really sorry for all the popcorn lovers out there, but it just makes no sense to me. It's, it's, it's equivalent of whispering. And if people whisper for a movie... Unless it's a movie like Hook where you're all allowed to just, you know, get on board and it's like a festival sort of gig. Mm-hmm. Anything which requires concentration should just be quiet and noisy eaters are banned. We'll come back to food at the end yeah. uh, for the big <laughs> finale, but let's go back to the cinemas of your life. So you grew up quite far up north, right? North Yorkshire. I did. Were there any cinemas nearby? Was going to the cinema a thing when you were a kid? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the main cinema I used to go to where I watched the, the first movies of my life, well, the first one I remember, it was the mostly in a cinema. You, you're from Yorkshire, are you? Michael, where no, are you I'm from? wrong side of the Pennine. Sorry, I'm Manchester. Oh, you're Manchester. Okay. So it was just outside York, a place called Clifton Moor. And there was a cinema there, massive multiplex. And that was where we used to go as kids and watch Beauty and the Beast, Forrest Gump hook and then when our teenage years we'd get a bus to Clifton Moor and spend the afternoon getting one ticket for one film and then we would sneak into 15s and (laughs) maybe an 18 you know catch like tiny fragments of movies until we got kicked out that was my sort of main multiplex and then my local town tiny little town called Moulton has a one screen cinema which fits about 60 70 people and they have a movie on a week and that was always very special there's an Italian opposite called Florio's so I watched many a movie there, um, very sweet, very, and it's still going, independent, tiny cinema. And I really hope it survived the last yeah. two years because they're obviously the cinemas we've got to be looking out for. Mm. But shout out to Molten Cinema if you're yeah. listening. So when you were sneaking in and out of all of these films and catching fragments, what were the films that you were watching that convinced you that this was your calling in life? It's funny. I wish I could say that there were movies at that time that had a light bulb moment where this is what I want to do. To be honest, my journey into this industry and this career I've been very lucky to have has mostly come through theatre and most of those moments happened at youth theatres and there wasn't that much crossover there should have been more and actually you know I'm always advocating more conversations at drama schools in London should be and they are bringing in film and television more and more but that was where my foothold really in acting and performance and storytelling happened my cinema going was always just wonderfully escapist and fun. And it was like our Saturday afternoon, you know, we go and eat some junk food. And as I say, we would just spend the afternoon in the cinema. And it was, it was blockbusters. It was mega, mega blockbusters, like Deep Impact and Armageddon. <laughs> I think I probably watched them on the same day. I think they didn't they come out at the same time. Or, yeah, yeah. I remember like watching Deep Impact in the cinema, Independence Day, Twister, those 90s, early noughties, epic big movies were what we were, what was my fair, you know, it was like multiplex and probably chowing down masses of popcorn. <laughs> my love of good cinema, well, good cinema, what it is, that's not, I'm not being disparaging towards great big blockbusters of old, but my kind of, I guess, education into a more sophisticated sort of cinephile space 
happened later when I was at university, when I became very close with a, a director who was directing me in theatre, but also had an amazing hold on film. And she was doing a thesis at MPhil on um, AIDS and the American stage, but also in relation to movies. And she introduced me to incredible filmmakers and we watched, like, it was quite, <laughs> quite cliche because at that time it felt like, it was very pretentious, but it was all, you know, like Larry Clark and mm. The Angels in America, HBO three-parter. And I remember a film she introduced called Open Hearts, Susanna Beer, one of the dogma movies, which just really struck a chord. And that was when I started to really open up a love of independent cinema and much later. And that, and that was kind of coincided with this moment in my life where I went, actually, maybe I can do this, this hobby I've always had for real and take it into a proper career. So I owe her a lot, that, that girl, Libby, yeah. Libby Penn, she's called. So if cinema was just escapism for you growing up, what was it about those films that opened your eyes that you found in those films that you hadn't seen before? I mean, what is it? It's, it's the transporting your life in that hour and a half, two hours of sitting in that darkened space. And particularly for me, I, I was growing up in the countryside. I didn't really have much access to big cities. It was great until, about, until I was about 13. And then I realised that there was this massive party going on and I wasn't really invited. I had no way of getting there. And going to watch a film about, I don't know, a deep impact or something like that, you know, you suddenly see New York or you see LA or you see America. You know, I never, we travelled a little bit as, as a family, but it was mostly like camping trips to Cornwall. It wasn't really big holidays. And so there was something about just the adventure of going into that space. And it was really once, I think for a lot of people, I probably speak for most people when, it, you know, cinema was my enlightenment when it came to recognising the world and, and how huge and vast it was. And I am definitely instinctively a nomad. I love travel and I love exp new experiences and, that, and I hanker after new experience, new countries, new people. And one thing about acting is that that journey that the industry takes you to all these different places, both in an emotional headspace, but also physically and geographically. And I think early on, those films, they got me excited for the world which was out there. And when I was old enough, I would be allowed to explore it for myself. And it was coupled with a frustration, you know, because I wasn't able to get there quite yet. I imagine I speak for a lot of people at that age, you know, where you're both aware of the size and the vastness of the world, but you're not quite able to access it. And cinema provided a bridge. That's a beautiful way of putting it. Yeah. Talking about that nomadic experience, looking through your roles, you have done so many different things and so many really interesting kind of interrogative stuff. And I was also reading a few interviews with you and I realised that people were asking you a lot of the same questions, kind of like about period dramas and are you going to be the next Bond? And I was like, for an actor who clearly is really interested in just doing all of these multiple things, how do you ensure that you are not going to be pigeonholed? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it's something one has to be aware of all the time. I've just started producing. I'm producing my first movie right now, actually. it's Free Guard. Yes, Free Guard. I'm really excited for this. Yeah. yeah, exactly. They're on set right now. Gemma Arterton and Julian Barrett are currently shooting together. And they shot me out so I can go back onto this HBO show tomorrow. So I've happily passed the baton to Gemma in there and they're shooting right now, which is great. Wonderful feeling to have been part of this thing, this development for about four years. And so that has massively helped with having a bit more ownership and agency in the stories I want to tell and the roles I want to develop and applying the time 
off camera to that process you know the more and more you do this job you recognize that actors don't have as much control don't, don't have as much creative agency as perhaps you think at the beginning particularly because they're often the shop window to the movie and so you think oh wow they must have been there from the beginning carving out this role and actually the truth is most of the decisions are made for you when they're writing the script and they're conceiving of the tone and the atmosphere and then in the edit afterwards so that's one way I've recently started to take a bit more ownership and up until this point yeah it's just about making sure that you've got a good team of people advising you and I was very lucky early on so that was a real moment for me because it was I was able to take a role which was very dissimilar to me and was a massive risk and they entrusted me with it being a producer I've realized that it's so much easier just to cast the role as the pigeonhole. You don't have to pay for a dialect coach. You don't have to worry about a big sort of physical transformation. You can, if the role walks into the audition, it makes the producer's life so much easier. And I get it. I get why people get pigeonholed because why would you have to spend all that time and risk and money on letting the actor go on the transformative journey when there's an option? We don't have to do that. So I get the problem. But if you're lucky enough, like I was, to do a role early on where you can prove that you, that's what you love to do and you want to do it and hopefully you're capable of doing it. And when I, when I had that opportunity, I definitely took a big swing at it. I definitely took a risk and went for it and it paid off. And now I'm very lucky to be playing roles which aren't, you know, some are close to me, some aren't. And making sure that, you know, when you've done one role, an offer might come in which is similar to that role and being brave and saying no to a lot of stuff is key, you know, waiting for the one which is the next out of your comfort zone adventure. My agent, my publicist are constantly hearing me say, I just can't play, you know, floppy head English guy. And they're like, you're not. And I'm, I know, and it's this constant thing. I'm, I'm acutely aware of it, but it's, I think it's good to be aware of it. Keep it fresh, keep it varied. Absolutely. How has uh, the move towards producing and all of the sort of awareness that comes from that and trying to take the reins of your own career, how has that changed your relationship with just watching the film as a punter? It's been a fascinating experience seeing the inner workings of the beast and understanding it from, you know, not because what I, my experience of it, and it's often the most special experience of a film process is, is the sort of sacred acting space, which all the preparation, all the reccees, all the costume design meetings, all the casting, and then all the edit. It's all really about that little space that when the good directors create a sort of sacred energy in there and, and the actors come and it's wonderful to have been a part of the prep process. And obviously now we're going into the edit in a few weeks. I mean, it's been a real open, eye-opener for me and a really important one as far as you know, respecting and valuing those people who are part of the process to create the space which we act in. Because I can't believe how much work goes into the development process of a script. You know, the, the unsung heroes of cinema are the script editors, in my opinion, the development executives, because they make so many decisions, take so many risks, get rid of characters, bring in new worlds. It's like all there in those months, those note sessions, really. The writers, obviously, first and foremost, incredibly important, but the people who are advising the writers who are taking these big risks, turning the direction and, and, and basically, you know, have their hand on the steering wheels along with the writer. I'm embarrassed now, having gone on sets and, and as an actor and gone, I don't like this monologue. I'm going to change this. I'm going to rip this out. I'm going to, if you don't mind, I'm going to not say that. And now I'm thinking that would have taken, that's like a year's work. And then some prick swans <laughs> on to set and just goes, I'm going to say this actually, if that's okay. I have, that's something that's just drastically changed. I'm in awe of the development process. And those words which are on that page are a gold dust. There's another flip side to it, which isn't so great to witness, which is where, you know, producing obviously inevitably brings in 
the conversation between the creative and the commercial. And having now had a look behind the curtain at how a film is financed and how important it is for the money, the people who invest in that money, they need to safeguard that investment. And so they put a lot of attention into bankability and annoying with things which feel they would compromise the creative. I guess I knew it was there and it was inevitable to have to confront it, but to actually be in the room and have conversations about actors and have numbers next to their name attributed to bankability or financing or how much money, you know, one actor will bring in more money than another actor. That is difficult to stomach as an actor Mm. because you know that there are many conversations which have been had and are going to be had where your name is going to have a number next, next to it. And that arbitrary demeaning you know metric has nothing to do with your capability as an actor and it often defines whether you get the role or not Mm. so that's been depressing and inevitable I guess you know hopefully you can try and make movies where the writing is good enough so that you can bring in the talent you want and not have to in order to bolster the financing but it's not always the case it can be such a rude awakening learning all that stuff because you know when you're a kid when you're a young adult when you're just a fan watching the films an actor is magic, what they do on screen. And I wonder, taking all that business away, just pushing it to the side for a moment, yeah, yeah, yeah. who are the actors of your life that you looked at on the big screen and just knew they're, they're the ones, they're the, the ones for me? Wow, that's a really good question. Uh, who have recently been extraordinary? I mean, Sam Rockwell recently um, has been an inspiration, I think. Sean Penn, as a director and as an actor, Into the Wild, even though he's a director rather than a writer, Mm. rather than an actor, but that film for some reason chimed with me so, I think Country Boy, again, talking about expansive cinema and taking you into a journey into the upper parts of Alaska was just an amazing experience. Um, Francis McDormand recently, I mean, obviously goes without saying, my girlfriend and I are in a deep, like our go-to stuff right now is like, Mike Nichols, 80s rom-coms, so pretty much everything which Meryl Streep is in. (laughs) I was very lucky to do a bit of work with her recently on Little Women, and she was not a disappointment. She was astoundingly impressive. Saoirse Ronan, I think, is top of her game and is so down to earth. And again, very lucky to have been able to stand on the same set and watch her work. It was making me laugh earlier when you were saying about how you would change the lines if you were on set or whatever, because I spoke to Greta Gerwig a few times and she's always like, if there's an um or if there's a word there, it's because I put it in there. I do not let my actors change the words. Was that your experience working with Greta on Little Women? That's so interesting. Well, it was because the nature of the script was period. Yeah. So... Yes. And also I didn't have that many lines, so I made sure that I, I learned them. Usually the ums and the ers come when you're not quite familiar with the lines mm-hmm. and, and can be an asset. And particularly director gives you license to be a bit more fluid with it all. Luckily, I'd obviously learned my lines well enough that she didn't have to come in and tell me where I was going wrong. <laughs> partly because I was terrified. But I would love to do something contemporary with her and, and experience what that would be like. And I suppose on the almost opposite end of the spectrum to what Rihanna was saying about Greta Gerwig being very much on script is someone like Mike Lee. And that's one of the rare examples where all of the development and the time he puts in before the cameras are even rolling is what people are fascinated by, his process. Yeah. So what was it like working with him on, on Mr. Turner and seeing how the beast works there? It was an interesting experience. I mean, I loved watching his process and it felt very special to be a part of it. I have to be careful because I 
because I, 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 I mean, it's an amazing thing to go through, like having five months or something of preparation where you build a character and the, and the process is extraordinary. He's, he's also quite secretive about it. And he does say to you early on, mm. you know, keep this relatively quiet, although everyone kind of knows what his process is anyway. But it's bizarre. You know, you, you spend hours walking around a massive room trying out different idiosyncrasies and, and movements and whatever they might be. And, and he sits in a corner with a clipboard and he'll kind of, sort of note and then you discuss it afterwards and i mean it is as you'd expect if not more thorough it's hard to believe how thorough it is when you compare it to other movies where you're lucky if you get three or four days of rehearsal to have five months is insane my only question about the whole mike lee process and i think i was i'm not the only one who said this is that there's a mike lee kind of dream scenario where you get to build this amazing character and then you get to let them live and you get all these improvisations and, and, and you can throw them into these worlds, whatever the world might be, whatever the scenario and the circumstances and you're empowered and ready to, to improvise and go. That's an amazingly empowering feeling because I don't think I've ever felt as prepared as I did on a Mike Lee set compared to any other job. The Mike Lee casualty is when you don't get to do that. And that happens a lot with his process. So you build this character and then you don't get to let them breathe or live. You know, I did months of work and then I shot the scene for about two hours and I had one line and he directed me mm. on that line. So all the work kind of was irrelevant. Now I'm one example of what happened in the Mike Lee process. There are many, many others, more often than not, who have an incredible experience. And that's why I think it's such an important process. And I learned an amazing amount. I would never turn the clocks back. And I hope this doesn't become, I mean, I'm, I feel very sacrilegious talking about the Mike Lee Roses in this way, but this is not detract, detracting from him as a director. I think Secrets and Lie, I think some of his movies, Another Year, they're just unbelievable movies. Some of my favourite films from that period of British cinema. So I'm not taking away from him as a director and as a, him as a genius. I just sometimes feel like I felt frustrated because I had this character, I could have done a five-act, could have improvised a five-act play and I didn't get to do it. And therefore I felt a little frustrated. He's a formidable presence. And, and I don't want to down, I, I'm not in any way calling question him as, as a director. Oh, he's a, an his incredible director. He is. Amazing. Yeah. He's the best. You know, he's one, he's an absolute national treasure. We are incredibly proud of him in this country and the work is, speaks for itself. Absolutely. It's just my personal experience. I would have loved selfishly to let that character live and breathe a little more than I was allowed, perhaps. Yeah. I suppose what you were saying about development, you know, a lot of that would happen on the page. What Mike Lee does is with real people. And you might think about the amount of babies that have gone out with bathwater or darlings that have been killed in the scripting process. He does that with with live bodies and that has uh, pluses and minuses, I'm sure. But I suppose to, to take us back to cinema experiences, I love the fact that you said that you'd go to screen on the green and that would be your place to have some your time to yourself and watch a movie. What's your taste in films now as an adult? So we've gone through sort of your childhood your young adulthood where the world was open to your eyes and now what would you go and watch as an adult i mean i'm quite open i don't think i'm a specific like sci-fi fiend or a horror fiend i, I mean i i am quite open-minded about what i see i like being taken on different journeys again you know a bit like the roles one chooses i enjoy being challenged and taking out of my comfort zone and and surprising myself with what I might not know I like. The movies which I tend to gravitate to, and I think this is quite common with actors, but are character-driven drama. And if the sci-fi or a genre element, it's a Trojan horse really just allowing the characters to 
be put in situations which challenges them and it ekes out more of their conflict, their journey than um, the big spectacle bombs and explosions. <laughs> That's, I guess, why the screen on the green on a Tuesday afternoon when no one else is there is my cup of tea because it's funny, you know, I said I grew up on the blockbusters. Nothing better than going to a massive blockbuster and, you know, um, but that's a very different experience. And if I had the choice, it's the quieter movie, which Roger Lowe Pack put it beautifully once where he was actually talking about American and British actors. But I think you can apply it as well to cinema. And he was like, I prefer to be drawn forward in my seat and I want to be leaning and I want to be looking, you know, trying to work it out and look behind the eyes. So, for example, rather than being pinned to the back of my seat. So I guess for movies which have really stuck out for me recently would be Pavel Pavlovsky, the Cold War Ida, that type of tone, that type of gorgeous, gaudy cinema, like, you know, where it's so rich and yet the characters are so front and centre. What we love asking our guests is, is there a moment that you are so, so happy that you saw at the cinema and not at home on a small screen? I remember when I saw, and this is quite a bleak one, but again, it goes, it goes testament to what I love, that magic hour and a half in that quiet room. I went and watched Amour at the Rio in Dalston on a Tuesday afternoon on my own. And I just remember leaving and knowing that my life had changed a little bit. And I had spent in that two and a half, two hours, whatever it was, in the presence of something so profound and universal and was just so so powerful i'm so pleased i saw that in the cinema but also it was quiet and it was reflective and it felt like a church and it felt like we were you know we were in some way almost sort of at at prayer whilst watching it It was so sacred so yeah that was an amazing experience boyhood i remember the ending of boyhood i remember thinking i've seen something so special and experiment paid off so beautifully that song at the end family of the year when he drives over the hills to the to college it was just i think it kind of it kind of coincided with a moment in my life where i was or oh, i had just done that journey and so yeah those two sort of stand out i'm not really an imax fan but i watched free solo the other day the imax oh, wow. watching yeah. those shots those drones yeah. coming that was a real like wow cinema in its spectacle form can be unreal you know because because you know the vertical nature mm-hmm. of the seats i got a real vertigo sense then it was a perfect example of where technology cinema and then the way the form with it which it takes in the kind of imax was a sort of wonderful perfect storm and i yeah, i love that experience it's nice to hear documentary being spoken about in that sort of form you know we hear a lot about these epics but actually those documentaries can be as epic which is yeah lovely nowadays, to pick up on yeah sure yeah more and more yeah, it's funny, isn't it, how that drama documentary space is now becoming so intertwined. It's going to be harder and harder to define what is a doc and what is drama. I mean, was Nomadland a documentary? Was mm-hmm. it a drama? <laughs> Precisely. It's funny you're mentioning Amour. That is definitely a film during which you don't want to hear someone rustling their popcorn <laughs> in the background. No. So bring it all the way back to your food and the cinema experiences. I'm kind of understanding now, now you've told us a bit more about what you like to see in the cinema, why you would be averse to other people eating. But of course, we've got to ask the big controversial question, which is what you would like to eat. It sounds like we're going to have a spotlight on you in the back. <laughs> <laughs> what do you eat? We're not going to do that. But if you were going to take some food into the cinema, do you have your own tastes? If I'm on my own... And I'm not with anyone. I'm happy to eat popcorn. But it's a good snack, isn't it? It's salty and it's relatively light and you can chow down lots. And, and there's something, there's an obviously an association with the whole blockbuster experience. 
if I'm with someone, I'm even conscious of the noise I'm making and therefore I'm putting them off. It's that bad. I'm, 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 I really, I need to go and talk to a therapist about it. <laughs> it's, it's deep. So if I'm on my own, yeah, popcorn's great. And if I'm with people, I think, I think a glass of red wine. My girlfriend and I watched Joker the other day with a bottle of red wine hidden under our seat. I think it, we definitely accidentally spilt a couple of glasses just in the kind of mayhem of that epic <laughs> scene in the middle. I think, yeah, is that a bit of a boozy answer? Am I allowed to have a drink? You're, abs- you're absolutely allowed to. We're all adults, all right. right? We're all over 18. We can bottle of red wine. Yeah. Bottle of red wine in the cinema in a quiet, cosy, dark quiet as i said (laughs) dying for that experience right now you're gonna see me in the cinema aren't you you're gonna sit down next to me with a big thing of popcorn and just gonna throw it at you i'm gonna forget crunching it yeah 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 you'll hear me you'll feel me kicking your seat (laughs) so let's recap we have hook 30th anniversary screening great not to make us feel old Yeah. And this is going to be a satellite screening, screening both simultaneously at the Alamo in New York and screen on the green. Great. Perfect. Sounds good so far. No one apart from you is allowed to eat anywhere (laughs) on the premises. Perfect. But but red wine. Red wine is okay, I'm sure. Drinking can be quite quiet. Everyone should have a glass of red wine or two, assuming they would like that. I think a nice, quiet wasabi pea. Well, that's quite noisy, isn't it? I mean, I'm trying to think of a quiet snack which doesn't require that much crunching. Maybe a bit of beef jerky. Not very environmental. Anyway, we'll think about it, but let's go red wine. Let's go red wine. We've got the important thing sorted out, which is the drink. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And a peanut. Um, yeah, it sounds good. Hook. A boozy hook afternoon. And home videos from your family as well, just to tease Home videos as trailers. Which is lovely. Yes. Wait, would they be of you in a play? Is that what you kind of mean? You know, like... No, no, no. I don't mean that at all. I mean... <laughs> have some mean I just I love the idea of going to a cinema and everyone you know when you're like oh you might go oh look at this video of this moment when we were all together and if all your friends and family are in there and you can just bluetooth your videos up it'd just be kind of fun to have a half an hour where you're able just to watch yourself on the big big screen but a home movie vibe you know Christmas 1993 but on the IMAX or whatever just I just love the idea of my grandmother playing Scrabble on the IMAX. (laughs) That sounds beautiful. (laughs) James, thank you so much for joining us for this chat. I've loved it. Thank you both. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. That was wonderful. So that was James Norton. He is such a lovely, enthusiastic guest, really passionate about films, which is really nice to hear. But also, I really enjoyed hearing about him exploring other filmmakers, the kind of movies that he loves. So grew up, obviously, into big explosions and now loves a quiet drama. I love that bit about leaning forward, you know? I could really sense what he meant by that. Absolutely. Although I must say, I can't get behind banning food from the cinema. (laughs) Come on, other people have to enjoy themselves too. Just because you're leaning forward and falling in love with the Mike Nichols drama on the screen, (laughs) other people have to enjoy themselves too, right? He was absolutely fuming about it. I really, like, there must have been so many instances where that has happened where he's just wanted to, like, go Hulk smash on them and hasn't been able to because he's so British. And so it's all just coming out in that chat. And we should give James some respect because out of all our guests so far, he was the guy, he came prepared. As we started recording, he pulled out a notebook, (laughs) (laughs) opened up, was flicking through the pages. He'd really thought this through. You can tell he's got into producing now. (laughs) 
If our chat with James has got you excited to hear more just like it, then check back in our podcast feed for any episodes that you might have missed and subscribe to get the next one. Thanks for listening. Bye. This is My Cinema is a Little Dot Studios production for Biffa. The show is hosted by Rihanna Dillon and Michael Leader. It's produced by Jake Cunningham, Ellie Aitken and Harold McShiel. And we're edited by Content is Queen.